Follow along with me as I read John 17, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Thank you, brother. Church, if you want to follow along, I'm going to be in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, the, uh, the section of scripture that he just read. For those of you who may just be joining us for the first time, or maybe it's been a while since you've been with us, we are walking through the Gospel of John, and we've reached John 17 this morning, and we're really on the tail end of a section of Scripture, verses 13, or chapters 13 through 16, that's sometimes called Jesus' farewell discourse. And the farewell discourse functions within the Gospel of John as Jesus' kind of last uh, last pouring out his heart, his last thoughts to his people before he goes to the cross. It's three chapters full of Jesus speaking directly to his people, letting them know what he wants from them, what he wants for them after he departs. But as we pick up this morning in John 17, the focus kind of shifts and Jesus is no longer speaking directly to his people. He has said, kind of as it could be said, like all that he has needed to say, all that he can say. And now what he does is he moves to pray for them. So now what he does is he moves and goes directly to the Father. And really John 17 may have a, a little Something over on, the, on your Bible called the high priestly prayer. The whole chapter is one long prayer, and it's remarkable for several reasons. One, you could say it's remarkable uh, because it is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. If you look through the rest of the Bible, you will not find a prayer of Jesus to the Father longer than this one. Second, it's remarkable because of its location, because if you think about it, it's coming right before the cross. So he's looking forward to the cross, and he's also coming on the tail end of this kind of pouring out his heart to his people. But I think for me, the thing that's most significant about it is it's one of these beautiful glances, these glimpses, these windows into the intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. My hope is that as you hear Jesus' heart today, that it is going to move you and grow you to desire the same thing that he desires. With that said, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we come before you asking that you will do with this word, Lord, recorded, what your spirit intends, that the Son would be glorified. Lord, we also pray that our hearts would be stirred. Lord, that Jesus' great desire would be our great desire. And Lord, that you would move us as a people to hunger and thirst more for him. We pray that you would use this word, Lord, that you have given us to do this by the power of your spirit, for the glory of your son and the good of your people. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. 
Amen. I don't know if you knew this, but you can learn a lot about somebody by listening to them pray. Did you know that? One of the things you can learn is kind of how they relate to their Heavenly Father. So if, if a prayer is very stiff, it's very formal, and probably something about the way that they approach their Heavenly Father, there's a level of formality to it. There's a level of not wanting to say the wrong thing. I got to get it all right. Or maybe it's that when they pray, they're more concerned about saying the wrong thing so that somebody else doesn't think wrong of them. So they're, they're kind of more concerned with the perception of the people around them, and they even kind of lose sight of the reality of who they're talking to. But I think one of the primary things that we learn about people when we listen to them pray is we learn as we listen to them as someone prays and we listen to them, we will eventually hear what's most important to them. If you listen to somebody pray, it will eventually become clear what's most important to them. For instance, I love listening to my youngest, Nora, pray at the table. And as the youngest, she demands that right a lot, okay? <laughs> and when she prays, um, her genuine desires will eventually come through, and it is often humorous. Now, when she prays, she often first prays like she's heard her mom and dad pray. So some of what her, she's praying for, she's kind of repetition and parenting. So she'll, she'll pray for the different people in our church by name that are sick and that are struggling. She'll sometimes finish with, and for all those others who are sick and hurting, and then she prays for things that she knows she should be praying for, like, and help me to obey mommy and daddy and be nice to my brothers and sisters. <laughs> Something that we often pray for them. But eventually, if you give her time and she isn't rushed, her deepest desires come through. Like last week, when we, Emily and I were headed out of town for a few days, and my grandma, their grandparents were coming to watch them, Nora began to pray, and then she finished like this. And help us to have a willy good, a willy, 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 really good time when mom and dad are gone. <laughs> now, Nora doesn't know Jesus yet. But I find that prayer beautiful, not because it was eloquent, not because it was just super noble, but it, because it was the honest expression of her deep desire. And I mentioned that this morning because I think that's what prayer should be. As someone once, prayer, once said, prayer is our soul's sincere desire. Our prayers, when we get down to it, reflect what we care about most, what we prioritize, what we desire most. And it is for that reason that I find these verses that Chris just read so amazing, so instructive, and so powerful. Because in these verses, what we hear is Jesus's soul's desire, what he wants most. And it's easy for us to dive in right now to, to talk about what that is. But before we do, I just want to take a moment and I want to ask the question, why does it matter that we would know what Jesus desires most? 
Why does it matter for you here this morning that you would know what Jesus, a man who lived and died 2,000 years ago on a cross to save sinners, why would it matter for you to know what he desired most? And I think about it as I was thinking about it this week. I think as a church, hopefully you're familiar with this language that to be a Christian is not merely to say I believe something, but it is be a follower of Jesus, to, to be a follower of Jesus. And sometimes we define being a follower of Jesus as somebody who obeys him, which I think is right, somebody who knows him, somebody who loves him. But I think an essential part of being a follower of Jesus is that we desire what Jesus desires, that his heart becomes our heart. And I think when we look at these first few verses together, my hope for them is that we're going to see Jesus's heart revealed in these prayers in such a way that it will stir you up to want and desire the same thing. Amen? That's the hope this morning. And so the first thing we see in these prayers is that Jesus desires the Father's glory. Jesus desires the Father's glory. Now, again, I don't know what kind of vein you come from. I don't know kind of what your background is. But one of the things that I think I would want to make clear is that the Bible is very clear that the, the purpose of mankind, the reason for which he made the universe, is so that we would glorify him. Whereas the, the Westminster Catechism says, the Shorter Catechism says that the man's chief end, that you were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I hope that's not the first time you've heard that. But if it is the first time you've heard that, for 2,000 years, some of the best Christian minds are trying to condense the purpose of mankind, and that's what they have come up with. But here's the thing that I have sometimes struggled with. I have heard that, and though I agree with it, and though I understand it, and though I accept it, it hasn't always been beautiful to me. It's almost seemed like Jesus or God is being a little self-serving. I'm not supposed to be like that. Why is he supposed to be like that? But my hope is that as you begin to read into the understand the relationship between the Father and the Son, that this idea that you were created for the glory of God, that you were created to enjoy God and worship Him, and that your life's purpose is to bring glory to Him, that that would be something that is beautiful to you. That that would be something that you desire as well. Because in verse 1 we read this. When Jesus had said these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I'm gonna read that again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So as I just mentioned, Jesus, the, the, the first few verse or first verse here just kind of sets the context. He says, uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, and again, these words, I really believe are everything that Jesus has said to his disciples in this room pre-crucifixion where he's coming and is saying, kind of connecting it with what has come before. And it says, when he has said these words, after he has finished saying all he had to say to them, then he moves into this prayer and he begins by addressing the prayer to his father. 
Now, I feel like this is one of those words that we use so frequently in prayers that sometimes we don't kind of fully understand all that's maybe built up and entailed in that message. In other words, that he is not addressing this prayer in some merely formal way. This is the prayer, the intimate prayer of a divine son to his divine father. This is a prayer from a son who knows that he's about to go to the cross to his divine father. And I think one of the things I want you to see this is that when Jesus is praying, Father, he is doing this both because he is and has that relationship, but but also because he has earned that for you. That by faith, you approach your heavenly father in the name of Jesus, meaning you have a certain right to call the God of the universe father because Jesus actually said, that's what you're supposed to do, right? We are to address the father, our father who is in heaven, right? So you go to, you go to the father in the same way Jesus does by calling him father. But then he says, the hour has come. Now, if you've been with us through the Gospel of John, this should trigger something in your mind. When he says the hour has come, what is he even saying up to this point? The hour has not come, right? I mean, it's like every chapter, there's some little statement about where people are trying to force Jesus to either take on his kingdom or to do something that he's not ready to do. And his timing throughout and his reasoning throughout is this. He says, my hour has not yet come. Listen, I know that I came to earth to go to the cross, but what you're trying to get me to do right now is not right because it is not the appointed time. It is not yet. The hour has not yet come. But when he starts this prayer, he says, the hour has come, which means that the hour for which I came, the hour of the cross has arrived. And that is how he begins his prayer. So I just, we gotta start there. We can just skip over those so quickly, but there's so much weight So the question we have to ask now is Jesus is about to go to the cross. He knows fully how terrible that's going to be. So the question is, what is he praying for? What's on his heart? And he says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So we're going to take these two phrases and we're going to look at them each in part. First, he says, glorify your son. What does that mean? When we talk about glorify your son, often that's one of those words we use in church and we almost use it nowhere else. (laughs) So what does it mean to glorify? Anybody know? What does it mean to glorify? What's that? Honor, give honor. Yeah. What else? I don't normally do this, but I'm like, you guys are answering. So let's just keep it going. (laughs) What else? Worth. What else? Yeah, magnify. The idea is that when we give glory to somebody, we are recognizing their worth, their goodness. We are coming to see with clarity how wonderful they are. So when we come in here and we worship God, we don't worship God fundamentally because we like the music. That is a stunted way to approach it. We worship God because he is worthy to be worshiped and he has already done enough for you and I to worship him. And so when he says, glorify your son, he is praying that his full goodness would be revealed. And because of what he's just said, I think the only thing that can be in view here is the cross. He is saying the cross is coming. 
Glorify your son, meaning allow me through this cross to reveal to the world for all time the goodness of the son. Now, why would the cross accomplish that? Jesus has already shown he's loving by coming. He's already shown he's righteous by not sinning. He's already shown he's powerful by the various miracles that he's done. But there is something yet you have not seen. Jesus has not poured out his life in sacrificial love for undeserving sinners. You haven't yet seen the full goodness of glory of God until you see him on the cross. And so what he's praying for is he's praying that he would finish the mission that God had given him so that the full glory and goodness of who he is would finally be made evident. It's like you may have a friend like this, like you may have a friend who is a good friend, but man, when you are in that really bad place, you realize how great they are, right? But you have to get to that like really bad place before you realize how great they are. And so Jesus is going, bringing us to this place where we can see, kind of put him to the test as it were and see the fullness of his love, of his goodness, of his righteousness because he's gonna pour out his life on the cross for people that don't want him, for sinners who, had, who would ultimately sacrifice him. That's what he's doing. And so I believe that in the prayer, glorify your son, what he's really doing is he's praying, Father, help me to finish even to the last drop this work that you have given me so that the world may know who I am. But the reason that he wants that comes in the second half of the phrase where he says that the son may glorify you. In other words, he wants the world to see who he is because in displaying his goodness, He's also displaying the goodness of the Father who sent the Son to die. In other words, Jesus' glory is not in competition with the Father's glory. Jesus' glory is the Father's glory. And the reason Jesus wants to be glorified is so that the Father would be glorified. Because remember back in John 3, Jesus told him, for God, in that place he's talking about the Father, so loved the world that he gave his own Son. And so for the Son to come and give his life was a sacrifice for the Son, but it is also a sacrifice for the Father. And if the Son is the perfect revelation of the nature of God, it's not as if God's the angry one, the Father, and the Son appeases him. What he's saying is that ultimately that the Son perfectly reveals the nature of the Father. And so if the Son gets glory, the Father gets glory. Do you all see that? In other words, what is on Jesus' heart as he is looking forward to the cross is the glory of the Father. Think about that. As all the terrible nature of the cross awaits him, what he has got on his mind, the purpose that he is praying for is that the Father would be glorified. And so I think the thing I want to ask you this morning as his followers is how much is this grand desire reflected in your thoughts? How much is it reflected in your life? How much is it reflected in your prayers? Is this on your heart? And there's a thousand different applications for this, but I just want to give you one this morning. Did you know that Jesus commands you to pray for this? When he says in the Lord's Prayer, 
We're to address our Father who is in heaven and then hallowed be your name. That is a request that Jesus's name would be, the, the Father's name would be reverenced as it is intended to be. And so I just want to begin by asking you, pray that way. You don't need to say, hallowed be your name. You need to say this, Lord, I want my life to be about your glory. I want to desire your glory more than I want anything else. And if it's not, if you, his glory is not even in your thoughts and in your mind anywhere, I want you to begin just by praying this prayer regularly. Lord, give me a heart for your glory like Jesus has for your glory. And if you want to know what that looks like, well, actually, John has already made that so clear. He's talked about in John 15 that we glorify the Father as we abide in Christ and bear fruit. So here's the thing that we need to see. Jesus is glorified as his people are transformed into his image. And when people say, I glorify Christ, but give no concern to the way he calls us to live, to the way he calls us to fulfill our, uh, to, to be like him, we are saying one thing with our mouth that we are at that same time denying with our lives. Because a life lived bringing glory to God will be a life that is reflecting the fruit of righteousness as we abide in Jesus, okay? Now, as much as there is in that statement, there's actually more to this idea of glory that Jesus prays for because he's gonna go in two and three and, and talk about his people and salvation, but then in verse four, he picks up the same idea and he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I love this verse because it's where Jesus is kind of looking forward to his completed mission. So in verse four, what he's kind of doing is he's saying, okay, we're, we're, we made it past the cross. And he's saying, I've completed the work that you have given me to do. And I just love it because essentially what Jesus is doing is he's summing up his entire earthly ministry as something that brings glory to the Father by obeying him and accomplishing everything that he's given him to do. So when Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, he is talking about everything that the Father had given him to do. He is talking about the fullness that needs to be done for his sinful people to be redeemed. He's like, there is nothing left. So we can enjoy the fullness of what he has already accomplished for us. Amen? Amen. I came to glorify you by doing exactly what you sent me to do. And in the same way, we glorify the Father on earth by making it our aim to accomplish all that he's given us to do. But what comes next shows that his deepest desire once the cross is beside him, and this is probably one of my view, the most beautiful part of this whole passage, and Jesus says this. He says, and now, Father... Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. There's so much going on here. First, we need to see that Jesus' time on earth is a time without glory. 
Jesus entered, as we read at the opening verses, Jesus entered into a world where nobody recognized him for who he was. His own people rejected him, as John 1 makes clear. He was the son of God, the creator of the world, the one who created the world. He was coming into the world and the world did not know him. The world did not recognize him or give him the glory. And so every moment he was in the world and people were not bowing down on their knees to worship him was they were doing it in ignorance of who he was. And so he was, his whole ministry on earth, not just the cross, was this long period of him being humbled because he wasn't being glorified for who he really was. But then he prays that he would have the glory, but then he prays that he would have the glory Glory from the Father, not simply for the Father. So he's already prayed that he would have glory for the Father, but here he prays that he would have the glory from the Father. What is he talking about here? He's asking, very simply, that he would enjoy the recognition and praise and worship. I mean, worship is a strong term, but, but love of the Father that he had enjoyed before the world began. So he is praying that he would be glorified by the Father. Now, is that a simple or sinful prayer to pray? Let me ask you this question. If my son, Ty, says, Dad, I really want to spend time with you, and here's this Lego thing, and it's, I, look, I did it, and it's really cool, and he wants me to praise him for that, does that demean me? No, it glorifies me, Right? Because ultimately what I want, what he wants is he wants my praise more than the other people. He wants me to praise him for what he does. And so ultimately, even in that act, it's, it's glorifying to me. And so Jesus, by praying, Father, give me your glory, is actually glorifying the Father even in and through that statement. And ultimately, this is a glory that predates the universe. He says, this is the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And what this does is it reminds us again that humanity isn't ultimate. Because before you and I were around, the Son enjoyed the glory of the Father. We may be invited to the party, but we aren't at the center. Jesus has existed alongside the Father in a mutually loving, glory-giving relationship for all eternity. It's really good for you and I to recognize that when Jesus came to earth, he didn't do it to fill some hole he had in his heart because he was incomplete without you or I. That the love the Father had for the Son and the glory within the Trinitarian relationship predates the universe and that they were enjoying one another to its full long before he created the world. In other words, Jesus' great desire is that his life would bring glory to the Father so that he could enjoy glory from and with the Father forever. Let me say that again. Jesus' great desire is that his life on earth would bring glory to the Father so that he would enjoy glory from and with the Father forever. And I think as I think about us this morning, I think the thing that we have to recognize is that this is what God wants for you as well. And so how do we fight the temptation to walk away from this? Because really we have two alternatives in this world. And we need to begin to pray against the temptation to love the glory of man more. In John 12, 43, Jesus says and condemns the Pharisees and some of those who um, walked away from him, even though they believed that he was genuinely the son of God. He says, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And church, I just want to maybe just take a moment and just say, you have to choose whose glory you're going to run after.
you're either going to run after the glory of man or you're going to run after the glory of the Father. You've got to choose. And I think part of what we're intended to do here is to understand that there is a temptation towards the glory of man that we have to constantly be on guard against. If we're struggling with sharing the gospel with people, is it because ultimately we just don't think we feel the need or is it because we fear the rejection of man more than we feel fear the censure of our God? And I think one of the things I just want to encourage you to do is to begin to pray and ask the Lord to reveal you where there is a fear of man. Because a fear of man or a seeking of his glory will always draw you away from the fear of the Lord and his seeking of his glory. And then also, I also just want to encourage you, maybe just one mindset shift, is that if you are in here this morning and that your heart is, I want to know and I want to love and I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to honor him with my life. I think the thing that you need to be looking forward to is it reminds me of um, Matthew 25 and the parable of the servants where the master goes away, he gives everybody these talents and then he comes back and then he begins to reward them for what they did with what he had given them and he gives them this, this acclamation. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. And church, you are not called to be compared to anybody else in the way you serve the Lord. What you are called to do is be faithful with the things that he has given you and to live your life today every moment so that when you see him face to face, that is what he says. Well done, good and faithful servant. And that brings us to our second point. And there are only two points in this sermon. felt like you needed to know that. And that's that Jesus desires that his people would know God. Jesus desires that his people would know God. So I think I've mentioned that I think in the world today, there is a danger that we would put our relationship or God's love for us at the center when really it's the father's love for the son and the son's love for the father that has that the center but once we kind of get that misunderstanding out of the way, there's a second thing that's beautiful, beautiful about this is that it's a reminder of the, of the glory and the joy of what he's bringing us into. Because in verse 2, Jesus explains the relationship that his relationship to the Father has with our salvation. As he says in verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, I am picking up in verse 2, which is a little bit kind of disjointed from where we were. So I began with Jesus praying, Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And now he connects that with the salvation of his people. He says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And the idea being that this is a connected or really coming from what Jesus has just said. So Jesus has prayed that he would glorify the Father. And now he says, since you've already given the Son all authority, which means you have all authority to do whatever you want. And then you are now, he's now saying, and that you specifically have given him authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is important because what Jesus is doing here is he's connecting his glory and the Father's glory with the salvation of a particular group of people, a specific group of people who he says, all whom you have given him. And I think 
it's important to recognize that those are connected because the way that the Father is glorified is through Christ giving the gift of eternal life to those whom God has specifically given to Jesus. And why is that? Because it is in those out of all the world that were given to Jesus by the Father that God will actually see and recognize, that will actually see and recognize the fullness of God's glory and worship him as he deserves. So let me be clear. Jesus saves you and gives eternal life to you, not so that you will have just simply a life without ending, but so that you may see and enjoy the fullness and know the goodness of God the Father and enjoy it forever. Eternal life is not merely a life that never ends. It is a life with and him and through God. And it is a life that comes from knowing the eternal one, which is why Jesus explains the nature of this eternal life in verse three as in this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this is eternal life that you know God, that you know that they know you and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this is helpful. Because eternal life is sometimes viewed as not nearly, merely, is just not merely dying or our soul never dying. But eternal life is being connected and in relationship within knowing God, which is not simply an intellectual exercise like we know facts as, as, as often it's says, spoken of, just you can even the demons believe or know and, and tremble. It's a knowing him and looking to him so that our life beginning now comes from him and so it never ends. In other words, eternal life is not simply a matter of quantity, but it's a matter of quality. Eternal life is received not on the basis of some pill we take, some personal, impersonal transaction. It's the life-giving, soul-satisfying, joy-overflowing, intimate relationship with the only true God and his son, Jesus. It's actually seeing and knowing and loving Jesus for who he is, and it's having a personal knowledge of God. I love how Packer describes it. He says, knowing God is when God is actually opening his heart to you, making friends with you, enlisting you as a colleague, a covenant partner. It's a staggering thing, but it is this true, but it is true. The relationship in which sinful human beings now know God is one in which God, so to speak, takes them onto his staff, to his fellow workers, and to be personal friends. And it's this underlying reality that dominates John's subsequent thought that knowing God is the source of our salvation and our eternal life, as we see in the opening verses of his epistle in John, 1 John 1, where he writes that we have seen that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, to bring these two ideas together, What is on Jesus' heart in his final moments as he looks towards the cross is that through the cross, the goodness and glory of the Father and the Son would be finally and fully recognized and enjoyed by his chosen people in a life-giving, intimate relationship with the Father and the Son forever. We sometimes diminish salvation to an impersonal transaction where I must believe these bare facts about is this God in order to get this past to this place called heaven. But that view of eternal life misses the reality of what God has done for us in Christ. And it misses really the joy. And I think ultimately the, 
what is so striking about salvation. Salvation is not you get to live forever. Salvation is that you are connected now to Jesus by faith such that his life flows into you, such that it transforms you now, such that you will never die because you are connected to the vine when the life-giving sap of who Jesus is is flowing through you. If eternal life is merely something you enjoy at the end, guess what? It's good news later. But eternal life begins now through faith in Jesus. And we don't just know him at a distance. We don't get this mail order salvation. We receive it by internal relationship, intimate relationship with the Father and the Son, because we know them, because we see them as fully and completely and truly glorious. Amen? Amen. Everyone in the world who has heard about Jesus may hear the story and not think a thing about the beauty and the glory of God. But when a Christian is indwelled by the Holy Spirit and he comes to know Jesus, he begins to get a sense for the rest of his life of who God is in his glory and that he is good and that his life changes forever because Jesus has come to dwell in and with in him. And I think this idea of salvation that is like, I'm just going to be saved from like some bad place in the future and not I'm going to live with Jesus now really rips the heart out of the beauty of what he's talking about here in eternal life. Eternal life is not something we get apart from Jesus. Eternal life is something we get in connection with Jesus. And so my question to you this morning and everybody in here, and I know It's hot. At least it's hot up here. I don't know if it's hot down there, but it's hot up here. (laughs) My question to you this morning is, and I'm talking to my kids, not just my kids, youth. Do you know him? Children, everyone in the room, eyes here. Do you know him? I'm not asking, do your parents know him? I'm not asking, have you heard about him? I'm not asking, have you prayed a prayer? I'm asking, do you know him, the risen son of God? Do you know him? Good. And if you don't know him, the answer is not, do I need to earn him? The answer is not, do I need to pass a test? The answer is, I need to recognize my need of him and cry out to him and he will come to me. Because I must receive him with the heart of a child or I do not receive him at all. And for the adults in the room, I don't assume because you've been here for weeks or because you have been in church your whole life that you know him. Because you think that because you can pass a theological test or you've been a member of a church since you were knee high to a grasshopper. I don't know why I just said that. That wasn't in my notes. (laughs) just came out. Must have been the spirit. (laughs) But the point being, like, if you have been in church your entire life and you have not, you don't know him, please don't take these surface ideas that I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I did something simple. There was this transaction, but I don't know Jesus daily. He doesn't mean anything to me. I don't care about his glory. Don't think that if that's not you, if that's not a part of who you are, that you know him. I'm not asking, did you do something in the past? I'm asking, do you know him now? And if you don't, would you please come talk with Jeff? 
Scott, me, Andrew. Would you please come and talk with us? Because the reality is it is time for you to know Jesus because the eternal life starts today. And if you want to know what it looks like to know him, again, I'm going to quote Packer again because I think this is a great definition. He says, knowing God involves first listening to God's word and receiving it as the Holy Spirit interprets an application to oneself Noting God's nature and character as his words and works reveal it, accepting his invitations and doing it, he commands forth, recognizing and rejoicing in his love that he has shown and thus approaching you and drawing you into his divine fellowship. And I know that's a lot of words, so let me simplify it for you. You want to know, do you know him? Do you hunger for him? Do you humbly obey him? Do you hunger for him? And do you humbly obey him? If you say, I know him, and those two things are apart from your life, how am I supposed to know? How do you know? Because there is no greater joy, no greater purpose, no greater thing. If this is what Jesus desires, church, is for your good. It is the great priority intended to be the great priority reflected in your life, in your prayers. I want to just close this morning by asking you this simple question. If someone were to overhear your prayers, they snuck into your house or there was a monitor on and they were listening to your prayers, eavesdropping on your conversation with God, what would they say is your soul's desire? What would they reveal about what's most important to you? I think it's good and right to pray about everything that's on our hearts. God encourages us to come for him for all sorts of things, big things, little things, parking spots, whatever, come. <laughs> but in all these things, all these things we come and we ask, we need to recognize that the greatest and the biggest things that are on the heart of the Son are intended to be reflected in the heart of his people. And are they reflected in you? And if not, the first place to go is simply go to him in prayer and ask that they would. Because Jesus' desire for you is that you would seek the glory of the Father and that you would hunger and thirst to know him. And you would hunger and thirst that others would know him as well. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, praising you for who you are. You are the God who created the world, who sent your son into the world, who redeemed the world. Lord, and so we stand here now Lord, not on the basis of our righteousness as we're about to discuss, but Lord, on the basis of your son's death and resurrection. And Lord, we just pray that you would create within us, Lord, that we would be a people that our heart's desire beats for the glory of God, that we would hunger for you and thirst for you. And if there are any in here who don't know you, that they would hunger to know you, the goodness of God. And secondly, Lord, we just pray Father, that we would desire to know you and we would desire that all those that you've given to the Son would know you as well. 
And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.